Hello and welcome to another episode of The Grey NATO, a Hodinkee podcast. It's a loose discussion of travel, diving, driving, gear, and most certainly watches. This is episode 83, and we thank you so much for listening. I haven't been up to that much in the last couple of weeks. I've been home and just kind of uh, underwater with uh, several different work projects. But uh, Jason, you've been traveling a ton. Let's uh, let's start with a, a download from your recent adventure. Yeah, I, I can certainly do that. So um, my wife and I just got back on Sunday from, I guess it was about nine days over in the UK. And um, uh, it was it was, it was was really a proper sort of vacation kind of getaway. The, the, the excuse for going, and I, I think I had mentioned this on a couple of previous shows, was uh, a family event that, that was happening last Thursday in London. And we decided to tag on a few days early and do some exploring out in Wales. And, you know, I got great advice and, uh, from, from a few listeners and, and certainly made good use of that, took a lot of notes and um, hit a few places that were recommended. Um, but, you know, the way the trip kind of shook out is we, we got in on a Sunday morning uh, on the overnight flight at about nine o'clock, picked up a rental car. And for this trip, I was able to use some banked uh, credit card points and was able to rent a, a Jaguar E-Pace. So um, I don't know if you've driven one of these, but the E-Pace is, I wasn't familiar with it. I thought the E stood for, you know, electric or something and it was some sort no, of... No, that's the I-Pace. Oh, the I-Pace, okay. It's confusing. So the, I think the E is the, the one that's smaller than the F-Pace, right? Yes, yes. Yeah. So when, when we saw it, I thought, oh, F-Pace, like a, it's an electric F, F-Pace. But then I noticed it's a diesel and um, you're, you're right, it's, an, it's a smaller version of the F-Pace. And I think it's a nicely proportioned... Um, really sharp car, good size. Um, you know, initially we had hoped to get, you know, I naively thought that a Range Rover would be a really fun vehicle to kind of take to, to Wales, which is sort of the birthplace of, of Land Rovers, uh, dating back to right. the forties. Um, but you know, having seen the roads now and driven on the roads in Wales, which are extremely narrow, I was happy to have kind of a smaller vehicle and, and the E-Pace was really, really fun. You know, you, you've done a lot of these great car trips over the past couple of years, driving some really cool exotic cars. And I haven't had that many experiences doing that. And, and so taking the E-Pace across the UK for, you know, I think we had it for four days was really, really fun. It, it kind of felt nice to be, you know, driving on the right side of the car, left side of the road uh, in a British car, um, you know, fairly high-end vehicle. It wasn't a high-end version of that car, but it was definitely a, a luxury vehicle. And and, uh, was it an automatic? It was an automatic. Yeah, had the paddle oh, shifters, nice. okay. um, and uh, you know, seats were super comfy. Um, controls were really easy to, to kind of get around, and um, you know, nowadays that can be a bit of a challenge if you're used to kind of an older vehicle and um, it's got a touchscreen and that sort of thing. But um, you know, I don't want to dwell too much on the car, but it really kind of added to the to the trip to have a, a really nice, comfortable. Uh, kind of luxe vehicle to to do this trip in and there were some and did you did you do that with um like with a special rental company or just like a normal rental house that's what they offered yeah it was through enterprise and i, oh, wow, I had okay. used these you know it was one of the rental companies that um, my credit card points worked at and you know they mm-hmm. offered a luxury vehicle i think it said range rover or equal or equivalent or similar and so when i got there they kind of gave me a few choices and and that was that was what we chose so uh, you know, some suitably windy roads through Wales, some a little bit kind of scary. You know, you get these really narrow roads that were probably built in the you know 1800s for, you know, horse-drawn carriages. And they've mm-hmm. 
uh, been paved over and, and they've got, you know, rock wall that runs right up to the edge of the road on one side and then barely enough space for two vehicles to pass um, on two-way roads. And so, you know, I was constantly sort of almost closing my eyes and just hoping we weren't going to have a, either a front-end collision or scraping a really expensive fender on a on a rock wall as we were <laughs> rounding these corners. But uh, nothing bad happened, and, and it turned out to be a really great vehicle for the trip. And, uh, you know, Wales, it's still... It's still with me, uh, you know, almost a week later. It was, it's one of those sort of magical, really raw places, uh, very kind of windswept and rainy and kind of brooding, you know, dark kind of gray, cloudy skies. And, um, uh, you know, we had kind of a nice mix of seaside towns um, and and mountains and small towns. And uh, um, we, we, stayed in a small town called Bedgellert. Um, and, you know, forgive me for all these probably very butchered Welsh name pronunciations, but um, Bedgellert is is smack dab in the middle of Snowdonia National Park, which is kind of where all the, the peaks are. Um, and we stayed in a converted church vestry, uh, which was an Airbnb and beautiful place. Um, two doors down was this pub called the Prince Llewellyn Pub, where we had uh, dinner a couple of times and, and, you know, some good pints of ale. And nice. uh, so we were able to kind of walk for dinner and there was just plenty of hiking just right outside the door. You know, you just walk across the road, across a little you know footbridge over this river and you're right in sort of rolling hilly farmland with peaks all around. And, and so it just made for a really nice way to kind of acclimate on that first day. And That's great. Um, so I think, you know, we, on the second day we were there, we decided that, you know, kind of shake off the jet lag and it was a, a pretty decent day weather-wise. So we drove out to um, a couple of seaside towns, which are about an hour's drive away because we wanted to see some castles. Uh, Wales mm-hmm. apparently has more castles per whatever, you know, for, for its size um, than any other European or, or UK country. So, um we wanted to take advantage of that, and we went to a, a castle at, at a town called Krikieth, which is on the on the coast, and it, it's just really dramatic. It sits on this sort of lump of a hill above the town, right on the over the ocean, and you know you buy a, a ticket for a reasonable amount and just kind of hike up the, to the top of the hill where the wind was blowing, and and the castle's kind of crumbling away, but you can climb around on the on the ramparts and kind of peek in all the little doors and things and. Um, so that was really fun, and then we kind of, that was kind of our coast day. We uh, went to a town called Port Maddock and uh, had breakfast there, and and you know took some photos on the beach. The tide was out, so you get that sort of scene with the all the the boats are kind of sitting up on their keels on the on the sand as the as the tide is out, and um, you know just sort of poked around and and did I think we did two castles that day, and then uh, kind of saw the coast and sort of did that scene, and then the next day we. Um, did uh, a fair bit of hiking. We we did a, a valley called um, the Kum Lan, I think is how it's pronounced, and it's the Kum. If you're familiar with the Western Kum from Everest lore, is 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 a Welsh word for I think it's valley. And the Kum mm-hmm. Lan is the valley that runs below Mount Snowdon, which is the highest peak in Wales and England, and the one that kind of everybody goes there to climb. And so we decided, you know, it was a little late in the day when we got started, we decided we're not going to try for the top of Snowdon, but we'd hike as far up the valley, kind of up the flanks of the mountain as we could. And, uh, you know, just, just beautiful, wonderful hiking, nothing technical. 
um, just sort of rocky, switchbacky, um, up through, you know, sheep's grazing and, and cattle and um, kind of old uh, rock ruins. There was a, an old building up there that had been used for commando training during World War II, and there were still kind of shell marks, you know, from from target practice in the uh, in the side of the walls and um, an old quarry that had shut down and sort of remnants of the buildings there. And, um, you know, uh, it was, it was just, as you'd imagine, kind of Welsh hiking to be the, the wind was blowing and it was quite rainy. So you know, we were well prepared for that with, with rain gear. And I think, you know, a place like Wales or, you know, Scotland or Iceland or, or any of these places, uh, certainly probably even in uh, British Columbia, um, mm-hmm. the weather is sort of part of the, it, it's part of the place. It's sort of what gives it oh, the, absolutely gives it the, uh, part of the allure. Um, so having expected that, you know, we, we didn't go there expecting bright, sunny days and hiking in shorts. And, and so it really kind of added to the whole scene. And, uh, and then that same day we decided to check out a, um, this little, uh, in little hotel called the Penny, Penny Gweird. I think it's pronounced. Um, it's the the little hotel where, um, as as legend has it, the, the 1953 Everest team had stayed and kind of based themselves when they were training, doing some winter mountaineering training for Everest. Um, and in subsequent years, the surviving members of that team would then go back there to kind of meet up for a reunion. And when they were there, they would whoever showed up would sign their name on the ceiling of this little kind of small room with a fireplace and, and rustic tables and benches where that, you know, presumably they'd sit and, you know, have pints and food and sort of tell war stories. And, um, so it was kind of neat to be there and, you know, look up and, and see Edmund Hillary's signature and Tenzing Norgay's signature and Sir John Hunt's signature, you know, just a few feet above my, my head. And, um, so it, it was kind of an odd little place. Um, the, the owners have a reputation of being a little, little prickly and a little bit sort of set in their ways, but you know, we weren't staying there. We just stopped in for a beer and, um, really sort of soaked up the, the history of the place. They have old mountaineering gear, uh, including some boots and oxygen gear and, and things like that from, from the Everest climb in in sort of display cases there. So, so cool. Highly recommend, uh, anybody that's, uh, in the area, you know, going to Wales that uh, make that sort of a pilgrimage if you're into, kind of the history of mountaineering. And then uh, kind of our last day, our last full day in Wales, we, you know, we thought, oh, we really should, should go bag a peak, you know, do, do kind of a proper climb to the top. And uh, one of the mountains that, that we had been considering is a place called Qatar Idris, which is, um, uh, one of the higher peaks in, in Snedonia. And, um, so we set off, we, we drove very circuitous route, took about an hour and a half to get to the, the trailhead and, we parked and it was just, you know, just pouring down rain and sideways wind. And, you know, we set off in all of our waterproof gear and um, kind of hiked up a fairly steep, rocky path up through some farmland. And then we got kind of above um, tree line and, and uh, kind of switch backed up. And you could see the, the this sort of ominous slab of the mountain kind of where we were headed. And the, the cloud deck was well below the the top of the mountain so it was clear that the there'd be almost zero visibility up there and and so we got up to the to the ridge line where it then kind of becomes more of a straight shot for the summit 
And by this time, the wind was, you know, I don't, I didn't have any sense of what this, the wind speed was, but it was just blowing sideways and really, really wet. And we thought, you know, if we kind of keep going up, um, we're, we're just going to be miserable and we're not going to be able to see anything when we get to the top anyway. So right. we sort of had a, a, you know, flask of tea there and sort of got our bearings and then decided to kind of make our way down. And I think that was a good decision that day. And that was kind of our experience in Snedonia. And then the, the next day was our day to drive back to London. And we decided to take kind of a southern route down through another national park in Wales called the Brecon Beacons. And uh, we had sort of two goals. We wanted to visit Penny Van, which is the mountain in the Beacons that the SAS uh, qualification uh, training happens. Uh, they, they take kind of new recruits and send them on this really brutal long march with 65 pounds of gear up and over this peak, you know, there and back in, I think they have four hours to do it. So it's, it's pretty brutal. Um, but it's a beautiful area. The mountains are very different. They're very, they call them glacial troughs. So they're very sort of sloped and grassy with flat tops on them. And, um, so we, we were able to kind of get there early enough to, to park and, and kind of set off for the top. And, and that, that peak, we did make it to the top and kind of spent a little bit of time shooting some photos and, and then headed back down. And, um, and our second goal was to visit uh, a distillery there that we'd read about before we went. It's a, a whiskey distillery called Penderen. And hmm. as far as I know, it's the only whiskey distillery in Wales. Um, Wales used to have a, a whiskey industry um, way back when, until there were some uh, sort of uh, religious zealots that sort of campaigned against it and almost, you know, threatened them and, and shut them down back in, I think, the 1920s. So um, Penderen revived the, the industry and they, they uh, distill a, a number of whiskeys and some gins. And, and so we stopped in there and had a little tasting and grabbed a couple of bottles of, of uh, whiskey and gin to take back with us um, and then headed back to London. So, you know, we made it to London by evening that day and, uh, you know, I think Wales was was the real highlight of the trip, but but we sort of were um, had a little bit of free time in London the next day, and I took full advantage. I, I had set up some time to go meet with um, Mal and Richard, who run Silverman's, which is a military surplus shop in Mile End in London. And back in the '90s, they had bought the the Cabot Watch Company name from Ray Malore, who was the founder of CWC, um, which had always been a military supply. Um, watch company for um, the Royal Marines, the Royal Navy, the Royal Air Force, dating back to 1972. And so I, I went over there one morning and, you know, just chatted with with Malcolm and Richard, and they showed me a lot of the vintage watches that they have, the old CWCs that were, you know, Bangladeshi Air Force, and the stopwatch that was used in the most recent Mission Impossible film, and, um, you know, the old dive watches that they have. And, you know, it's just really fun humble little company that's just very focused on making some just really cool military kit. And, um, turns out Silverman's has been in their family since my gosh, since probably the 1920s or thirties and their main business is military surplus. So they go out to auctions and they buy, um, old military surplus clothing and gear, sell it either through the store or through, uh, eBay. And, so just before I left, Malcolm said, you know, do you want to come and take a look at the back room? And he took me back there and it was just mind blowing. I mean, it was just this, this huge warehouse, floor to ceiling shelving of old, you know, 
army, navy, whatever surplus stuff. I mean, they, he dating back to World War One. They have old oh wow bayonet pouches and knives and Royal Marines pith helmets from you know jungle campaigns and um, RAF high altitude flight suits and you know boots and hot weather clothing and parkas and I mean it's just it, it was I could have spent an entire day just in that back room. Um, you know, ever since I was a little kid, I always loved to go to army surplus stores and just kind of poke through some of that stuff. And, um, so that was, uh, that was a real thrill. That was really fun. And then I went straight from there. I went to, um, a restaurant in Mayfair called Scott's, which was apparently Ian Fleming's favorite place to eat. And I met uh, Nick English and Natalie from, from Bremont and had a really nice, nice kind of lunch and catch up with those guys. Popped in at their boutique there, and um, I got a steel bracelet put on my Supermarine, which I've kind of been wanting for a while, so that was really fun. And uh, and then um, we had this event at the Maritime Museum, the kind of the, the reason I was we were in the UK to begin with, um, which was, it was neat. It was a really neat space, although we didn't really have a chance to kind of poke around the museum because it was after hours. But uh, um, that was a lot of fun, and... Um, and then finally, I, we had a free day the, the day before we flew home to take the train up to Cambridge and kind of, uh, kind of, kind of do more touristy stuff in Cambridge. We, we took, um, a, a little punting tour, you know, those little flat bottom boats, the, oh, right. Okay. The, the kind of a lot of the, I think a lot of the college students volunteer, sorry, don't volunteer. They actually work there to kind of, you know, pull people up and down the, the river there and explain what the historic buildings are, um, so that was a fun thing to do, and then we we had lunch at the um, the Eagle Eagle Bar, which is famous for being the place where Crick and Watson announced their discovery of DNA, and they have a beer there called the Eagle's DNA, kind of named after those guys. And um, and then in the back of that, sort of adjacent to it, there's a another bar called the RAF Bar, where a lot of the U.S. Air Force flyers would um, hang out during World War II with the RAF guys and they would, they, uh, there must be a thing in England or in the UK about putting your graffiti or your names on the ceiling because that, that ceiling of that bar was covered with, uh, kind of graffiti from, from the airmen in World War II. So that was a really neat, neat place to have a steak and ale pie and some beer. So that's awesome. And then just, you know, before I left, I had breakfast with Don Cochran from Vertex. So it's kind of, kind of doing the whole, uh, you know, British watch uh, scene with, with CWC and Bremont and Vertex and Don and I had a lovely breakfast and he showed me uh, the the DLC cased uh, MP45 chronograph that, that he's about to release and that was really fun to see and just got ahead a good catch up. So um, really, really a full trip with a lot of kind of diverse activities, you know, from mountain climbing to punting in Cambridge and, and some good time in pubs and um, you know, a little bit of watch stuff in there. So it was, uh, it was, it was a pretty epic trip. I mean, it, it really felt like one of those rejuvenating getaways to kind of do something completely different from, you know, a press trip or diving yeah. or, you know, whatever. I'm happy for um, you. I think that's awesome. So, uh, I think we, we can probably move pretty quickly into the main topic, but I had a couple kind of more qu- quick questions for you. Yeah. Uh, of all of that, what, what's the, like, if someone goes to Wales, what's the one place they should eat? One if place they around. eat. So like, what Wales. was the best meal you had? Um, man, you know, we didn't, I don't say Wales was a real food destination, but I would say that, you know, when we were in Bed Gellert, you know, just walking next door to the, the Prince Llewellyn pub, I think that pub scene, especially after you've done something vigorous out in the cold, uh, 
mm-hmm. um, was just so welcoming to just go and walk walk over to the the Prince Llewellyn pub there in Bed Gellert and just have a a steak and ale pie and a and a pint of ale um, was just so comforting. And of the spots that you drove around to, which one was kind of the most photogenic? If someone wanted to go and take take a nice picture for to as a memory of uh, of their time in Wales. Yeah, I mean, I think mountains are kind of what that area is known for. But I, you know, so anywhere that you kind of just pull off to the side, the 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 Kum Kum Lan Valley was nice. But I think um, the coastline really rivals it as well. And the the town of Port Madoc, we we sort of did a coastal walk to the next town of Borthy Guest, and um, that was just you know quaint little sort of coastal towns with life lifeboat stations and. Okay, um, and then Crickieth with the castle. So, yeah, right. Okay, and any uh, any local beer that someone should make sure they get get in their hands. You know, I never even paid attention to the names. I was just like everything was local, <laughs> and I think was yeah. I was just like pint of ale, and they would you know just hand it to they, me. So they have whatever they've got. Yeah, right. right. Cool. Yeah. Well, that's rad, man. It sounds like an awesome trip. I thought the pictures, like I thought the stuff that you've already put on Instagram was really cool. Um, we'll we'll link what we can in the show notes. Um, if you have a specific, a more specific question about, uh, itinerary or something like that, then, uh, we can, we can probably field that via email, uh, the at gmail.com. Yeah. And if any, if anyone's, if anyone's confused, um, when, if they do look at my Instagram, when, when this episode airs, um, you'll notice that I'm, I'm actually going back to London, uh, next week. So when this episode airs, <laughs> I'll be there for just a quick overnight, um, for an event with Omega. So, a very different sort of trip, but uh, yeah, that's uh, that's coming up next week. Very nice. I would go right back a week later. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, right. Yeah, let's uh, let's jump into the main topic. I think it's uh, okay. Probably time to do uh, that. So, uh, I think this is one that doesn't need a whole lot of introduction. It's our seventh uh, installment of collection inspection. Uh, these are always one of my favorites. So, this is for anyone who's maybe this new to the to the the show. Uh, you know, this is a, a look at a watch that Jason and I feel is permanent or semi-permanent in our collection. A watch that we like and we wear, and uh, and and it's just kind of a deep dive on one specific watch and why we like it. Uh, so, uh, Jason, do you want you want to go first with your pick? Why, why don't you go first? I, I need to catch my breath after sort of blabbing on about uh, about the UK. <laughs> okay. Yeah, I can go first. Yeah. Uh, so this is a watch I largely blame Jason for. <laughs> it's a a brand I had always been interested in, but had never gone out and purchased simply because a lot of the watches um, were kind of this mix of old and new aesthetic all applied into kind of one watch. And then, you know, a lot of them, it's hard to know based on their naming structure mm-hmm. um, what, what the size of the watch is. But this one... Turns out to have been a bullseye and on kind of on my first pick. So this is the uh, the Doxa Sub 300T 50th Anniversary, and I have a Sea Rambler uh, version. So this isn't the Aqualung edition, which came out a little later. This is the original from 2017, and they made 300 in each dial color. So those of you who don't know Doxa, uh, they typically, their, their main dive watches operate on three dial colors. So you have a black is a shark hunter, orange is the professional, and this sort of um, sunburst steel color, just white metal, is um, is the Sea Rambler. Uh, I really like the Sea Rambler because you get this bright orange minute hand, and I've always kind of been drawn to it. The other, you know, the other one of my favorites that they make is the 750 uh, GMT, which I, sorry they they don't they used to make, they don't currently produce them, and those were offered in uh, Diving Star and which is yellow. And Caribbean, which is blue orange, and the blue orange Caribbean is a pretty crazy watch. And Jason, you owned a seven fifty T diving star. I did, yeah, yeah. The yellow, it's a pretty they, rad they, watch. They do colors really well. I mean, Doxa really wears do. colors well. Yeah, 
And, uh, and yeah, you know, from the moment that I kind of first saw the pictures back when this watch was announced, you know, they were about just, just a hair under $2,500, a little less if you pre-ordered, uh, if my memory serves. And I don't, I don't know, I, like, I genuinely don't, like, I, I've written about the watch before uh, in, in some length, like in these weird sort of picks that we'll do occasionally on Hodinkee, but I don't think you can buy more charm for the money. It, the watch is so so fun and so distinctive and so unique and and so of a time and and you know this is literally a direct copy or you can call it a reissue if you'd rather but it's a direct copy of of the dive watch that they made in 1967 in terms of its proportions and you know it comes with a bracelet it comes in this great uh, packaging that looks like a, a scuba cylinder and i uh i really like the whole the whole sort of vibe and then with this one it's actually on it's not it's kind of, I guess, a middle-sized Doxa, smaller middle size. It's not the smallest. Um, but these are uh, 42.5 millimeters across and 12.4 millimeters thick. I, I don't think, uh, Jason, you could you could weigh in if you like, but I don't think it wears either of those dimensions accurately. Yeah, it's a hard um, watch to describe the, the size of. You know, people are always asking, does it wear big? And, uh, you know, yeah. with those dimensions, you think, boy, that's kind of a big watch. But yep. Something about it. I don't know if it's that small dial or how thin it is, but it just really hugs the wrist. Yeah, I think it's I think it's a mix of that kind of dished case shape, which is like what, why the reason the SRP seven 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 doesn't really feel like forty four and a half millimeters. Yeah, but I would say this wears really closely to the way my Explorer wears, which is a forty millimeter watch that isn't that thick. Um, if you look at the watch in profile, like a, a good chunk of that twelve point four millimeters is the crystal, which you don't notice. Mm-hmm when it's actually on your wrist. And it has this kind of staged case side where the actual case sits very flush against your wrist. And then you have the sort of the bezel kind of sits on top of that form. Mm-hmm. It has a kind of an architectural case. Nothing really looks like it. The bezel has this like really amazing grip on it. Um, that, that feels really nice. The case is really nicely finished. Even even for 2500 bucks, it's really nicely finished. Uh, I adore, I just literally adore the silver dial and the orange uh, accents. And it works really well. Like if you put it on a kind of an, uh, a leather, it kind of, it doesn't get dressy, but it, it becomes kind of, um, I don't know, like a, like an adventurer puts on kind of a tweed jacket and goes and talks at the Explorers Club about something. <laughs> yeah. And then if you throw it on a, on a rubber strap, it looks like a, it looks like a quintessential dive watch. It has this funky bezel. It has a lot of kind of late 60s, early 70s sort of design aesthetic. There's literally no way you could determine this to be anything but a Doxa. Uh, that, you know, they have such a unique presence. Yeah, and I, you know, one of the calling cards of Doxa is that beads of rice or grains of rice bracelet. And yet, I think this watch works better on almost anything but that. I mean, I, it, it does okay on that bracelet, but that bracelet is a slight miss because of the yeah. lack of the taper. Um, it has so some taper, you, but yeah. You you have a you have a one or two of these uh, different dial colors, um, but the same case basically. What, what's your preferred strap for it? You know, I do a lot on a NATO, and I do a lot. I on, love a NATO on um, on like a vintage Tropic strap works really oh, well. Oh yeah, for sure. Um, yeah, something that tapers, something kind of thin. Um, yep. definitely something vintagey. I haven't actually tried it on leather. I don't think, but yeah, I should do that. I like it. I like the, the, the silver. It could be, be a C Rambler thing. Yeah, 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 yeah. It could be C Rambler thing that it works so well with leather. And then the other thing I find that I really love for this watch is I have this. I, I've definitely talked about it on the show before. I have one of these eBay Shark Mesh straps. So it's 
they're like 50 bucks. I'm sure you can even find them for less if you hunt them around, but it, it's not like a fine link. It's kind of like a shark mesh. It looks like, like what people would wear to get in the water with a blue shark on shark week or something. <laughs> and, uh, and you, when, when you put that on and, and it's, you know, leave it, leave it a little bit sort of, um, give it, give it a, a micro adjust one, maybe two positions too big. So it moves around a bit and, and it, and that has like, for me, like a perfect, I'm I'm in the Caribbean. I run a dive boat sort of sort of look to it. It's yeah, uh, just summer. It's uh yeah. yeah. I mean it's it's a pure summer watch. It's so much fun on wrist. Uh, I it's an amazing. It's really they are really good on natos. Yeah. Um, and uh, I really like wearing this with the rubber nato when I go when I, if I'm going to be swimming or, oh, or right. kind of like kicking around the beach for a day because that's very it feels like dive watch equipment. But the nato gives me a little bit more um faith in my spring bars if I'm you know diving off docks and stuff like that. Yeah. Uh, with water rushing across my hands, so I, I do like that a lot. And uh, and then I yeah I currently have it on a NATO, which I will talk about in final notes actually. Yeah, I mean I I think you know Docs is one of those watches that it's a bit of a polarizing design. I, you know, for the first couple of years that I was on the forums, and I just did not get it. I thought they were kind of ugly watches, and I don't know. There's something about this sub three hundred is. And in each of the three colors, it wears so differently. I've had a chance to wear all three of them. And the black is a very serious kind of, you know, feels kind of like your typical sort of military inspired, you know, serious dive watch. The orange is, you know, bright and sunny and, and kind of very doxa, very loud. But yeah. I, I think the silver is arguably the best one with the pop of orange from the hand. And then that silver dials, for some reason, always make me feel like it's a, real vintage sort of um, yeah. watch, you know? Yep, I agree. Um, uh, I, mean, I I like it a lot. I think they're all sold out. Pretty sure. Or at least that that's my understanding. So this is the kind of thing you'd have to, if you want the... Now, so they made a total of 900 of these ones. And then do you remember specifically how many of each color were made with a... Um, Aqualung logo. Thank you, with the Aqualung logo on it? I think it was 300 of the Sea Rambler and 300 of the Orange, the Professional, and I think they stopped at 50 for the Shark Hunter for the Black Dial. Oh, okay, so I mean, yeah. th- th- then there's maybe there's maybe something like 1500 in existence. Yeah, uh, 1200, something like that. Yeah, there's somewhere around 12 to 1500 of these out there. So, and I don't know that there's a like the Doxa community is very into the watches, but they're not huge. Mm-hmm. Um, so I would say if it's something that you want, get on Watch Recon. And, uh, and and look for these. They they come in different versions. I don't think there's a bad version. Um, I haven't seen the um, I haven't seen the professional in person, but that's going to be the most doxa doxa. Yeah. Um, and then the only other thing I would ask is Jason. So this is forty two point five millimeters. If somebody wanted this but wanted one that that was the modern sort of it wasn't a vintage effect doxa. Yeah. What's its closest amalgam? A fifteen hundred. I think it's the twelve hundred. I think a twelve hundred. Okay, I think it's because you, you would think as the number goes up, the watch gets bigger, but it doesn't. I think Maybe the, I'm wrong. I think you're right. Yeah. The twelve hundred is the smallest current modern case size. Yeah, you know what? You know, a good resource is Alan Farmello, who writes sometimes for Gear Patrol. He did a piece. Alan's awesome. Comparing the three, or sorry, not the three, but the case sizes of three different doxes and i think he did okay. the sub 300 the 1200 and the 1500 and oh, okay we'll we'll just link that so his article on gear patrol has all the dimensions and it's, oh, it's super yeah yeah alan's been writing some really good like exhaustive product yeah 
um, explainers for Gear Patrol. Yeah, I met Alan. I met Alan at a Braemont thing earlier. Uh, well, sorry, last year, uh, mid last year, and he's just the sweetest guy. Um, and and then to have you know that one he did that was I think it was all steel Rolex models explained. Oh yeah, yeah, exhaustive. That must have been is a huge amount of yeah. work. Yeah. Yeah, no, that, I think that's some great stuff. So that, yeah, that makes sense. I, I do, rem- I do recall him doing a Doxa piece. So we'll we'll link that in there so that people can kind of have an idea of the sizing because it's not like the seven fifty. I think might actually have a bigger case size than the twelve hundred. It, it's kind of it's kind of different than yes, you might you're right expect. about that. Yeah, yeah. I, I would say um, just to close out this bit on the Doxa is, and I think you probably would agree that this is possibly the most comfortably wearing watch that I own. I mean, it, it definitely is for me. Yeah. I mean, just hands down, like you put this thing on and it just melts into your wrist. Um, yeah. And I mean, it, it doesn't because it because of the wider case, it holds on really nicely. Yeah. So like you would think the smaller, like you think typically the smaller the watch, the less noticeable it is. Yeah. But like my 37 millimeter skin diver, which wears beautifully on a NATO, mm-hmm. does not sit on my wrist like a, like this does. Yeah. This the the proportions are just kind of perfect, and it just kind of sits. It feels comfortable. It doesn't weigh that much. It's heavy on the bracelet, but the bracelet's really nice. It's nicely made, so it's a heavy bracelet. Yeah. But yeah, no, I think these are um, like literally endless charm. I think they're really stylish. Um, I think they're super TGN, obviously, mm-hmm. and uh, and then yeah, like you said, they're they're really comfortable, and they are one of those watches where they could it would make a perfectly great everyday watch. Um, you know, unless, unless you go into an office where this, where a dive watch would look kind of crazy on your wrist, they're kind of subtle. They're not that big. Uh, I mean the, the C Rambler is kind of bright, but the, and the, so as is the pro, but you know, I, I think you could wear them on a ton of different straps. You can easily, uh, dive and swim and bike and run and all that kind of stuff with them. They're, they're really killer yeah. and a, a nice, uh, simple at a movement. So when it's time to service it, it's not a huge headache. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, which I think I mean, is a good one. Total TGN stamp of approval. We almost need to have like a TGN approved products, and I think this would be at the top of the list. Oh, absolutely, and and I mean it, it's the kind of thing where like if the, I think that Doxa should use this as the platform for essentially a, a brand new sub three hundred, so it doesn't have to have the bubble crystal and, and everything else. It could yeah. be their kind yeah. of modern trimmings, but this size, this bezel, I think would be cool. Yeah. Yeah, in short, the Doxa Sub 300T, I absolutely adore it. I can't imagine selling it or not wanting it in my collection. I wear it pretty much all the time. Sometimes I'll wear it for weeks on end because it's just right, especially this time of year. And I, I de- genuinely don't have anything more to say about it. It's a, an absolutely fantastic watch for the money. Well, with that, I will, uh, I'll jump into my, my pick. Yeah, so mine is, is my uh, Tudor Submariner. It's the reference 9401-0 which means it's uh, one of the later no-date versions of, of the so-called Snowflake Submariner. And uh, this one dates from 1976. And, um, you know, I, in one of our past collection inspections, I had talked uh, at length, of course, about my 14060M Rolex Submariner. And, you know, essentially this is the same case watch. It's, uh, it's so similar um, to kind of the the layperson, um, that there's not much different that you can say about a Tudor Submariner versus a Rolex Submariner. But um, it, you know, I think I've gotten enough questions about you know what's the backstory of this watch, and and I think um, uh, it is a fairly different watch in the eyes of both collectors and kind of just people that see it that that it's worth talking about separately. And I, I bought it back in I think 2014, and it, it arrived in pretty rough shape. It it came with a, 
the mainspring was broken, so you know it didn't hold any power, and then the bezel was was seized in place, um, didn't turn. So you know it was time certainly, and I, I got a, a very nice price on it um, because of the the, the condition. Uh, so I took it to a local Rolex watchmaker here, uh, Wicks and Jewelers, and, and Lenny is their longtime Rolex watch guy, and you know, he's he's been a great friend to me with with this watch and my Rolex. And um, you know, I decided since he had to do so much work to it anyway, basically overhaul it, um, I decided you know let's let's bring this up to kind of spec and let's make it diveable again. Um, so he not only, you know, replaced the mainspring and several movement parts, did a full strip down and clean and, and replacement um, of everything and, and adjustment. But he also replaced the, the crystal, the, the crown tube and crown, put a, a new triplock Rolex crown on it, um, as well as all the gaskets. And then um, one problem that a lot of these snowflakes have is that, you know, distinctive hour hand, which it's just a lot of surface area of loom with not much supporting it so the you know if you if you think about like a mercedes hand on a rolex it has that sort of framework um, of the mercedes style symbol that kind of supports that loom the the snowflake hand doesn't have that so they're kind of prone to falling off the back and sort of crumbling away as that tritium loom paint deteriorates and that's that's what was happening to this one so he was able to sort of mix up some adhesive and, and tint it correctly to kind of re-secure it to the, the framework on the back of the hand, um, as well as um, it was missing the, the loom pip on the bezel. So he, he, he got a new pip, um, that little pearl on the bezel, and he was able to kind of carve out the loom. And I think what he told me he did is he mixed in, gosh, I want to say he mixed in some sort of yellow wax with the, the whatever material was inside that that pip. So it, it's the only part of that watch that, that actually glows. Um, and, but it matches the, the color of the hands and the, and the dial markers. So, um, I guess to a collector, it's certainly anything but original, you know, it has a, a different, a new crown. It's got a new crystal. It's had some, some work done on the bezel and the hands. Um, but the upside of it is, you know, it's, it's essentially, ready to go like a new, like it would have been in 1976. And I've actually been able to take it diving. I took it, uh, I did a story for Revolution Magazine shortly after the work was done, um, where I took it diving in the Cayman Islands and did several dives with it there. And then I did a, a press trip with Tudor, I don't know, a couple of years ago, we went to Tenerife over in the the, the Canary Islands and I, they were doing um, some free diving with their ambassador, Morgan Borchus and, and, uh, Christoph, the, the PR manager at, at Tudor said, Hey, can you bring your, your snowflake over? And so I did, and I, I did some, some free diving with it there. And, you know, it's certainly been on my wrist a lot. I, I have full, you know, faith in it. I mean, I think Rolex, vintage Rolex and Tudor dive watches, well, let's face it, any kind of vintage Rolex uh, sports watch is probably set up a little bit better to resist um, kind of the wear and tear and and the elements than than other watches. I think they're just made really um, really well, and um, so if they have some good gaskets in them, they're kind of ready for almost anything you can throw at them. And I f- definitely feel that about this one. Um, and and I've kind of worn it as such. Whereas you know I've got um, a, a vintage Rolex Submariner that I haven't had looked at or fully serviced, and I'm a little bit less apt to kind of beat it up or get it too wet. But um, 
that's not the case with this one. Um, you know, in terms of, of wear, I mean, it wears just, you know, it wears like a Rolex sports watch, wears like your Explorer 2 or my uh, modern Submariner. Very comfortable. It's that uh, 39 to 40 millimeter case. Um, super versatile um, as, as any Submariner is. But for some reason, you know, even from a distance, these these Snowflake Submariners, they just look a little bit different. The the dial, that matte dial with the applied markers, the kind of the blocky markers and those blockier hands, it just has a more absolutely kind of casual and sporty look to it, I guess. And the markers seem a little bigger. So I don't know, just um, especially if you take it off the, the Rolex bracelet and put it on like a NATO or um, a leather strap or something, it just... it. I almost enjoy wearing it more than a Rolex Submariner because it's a little less obvious and a little more, I don't know, it just dials it down a little bit. Yeah, I agree. I mean, I, I think those are super cool watches. And I knew I know back in the day, this would have been probably right around the time I started writing about watches. I, I was at a, a meetup in Toronto and um, our, our friend Al Jensky uh, um, of Archer watches and, and, you know, he rebuilds watches and, or was rebuilding watches for some time doing all sorts of service here in Ontario, Canada. He, uh, he had, uh, an, a Canadian coast guard issued huh. one, uh, w- with a black dial. Oh, wow. Yeah. And, uh, and that's one that I've always thought like, uh, if I was going to go the route of going to sub, I think like one of those Canadian issued oh, yeah. Tudor subs would be pretty fun to have. Yeah. Yeah. I, I just think they're really special. And, you know, I, I saw yours at the, the Tudor thing back a while ago and, and I think they kind of stand out as being different than a sub. And, and then of course we, we know guys that have the, the blue version, which is super fun as well. Oh yeah. And, uh, and yeah, I love the, uh, I love the style. I like that. It looks, I like that. I kind of like their, the, the snowflake hand over a Mercedes hand anyway. So yeah, I think I mean, they're, they're just kind of a more interesting thing. Yeah. And I, for some reason, you know, it, you can show up with a, um, a red sub or a 5512 or any kind of Rolex Submariner. And whenever I bring this to a meetup or just wear it, it seems to be really popular. It just gets a lot of attention from, you know, watch enthusiasts when I kind of show up to, to some event or something wearing this watch. And, um, I guess they're a little more rare and kind of exotic and, um, just fun. They just feel a little more accessible just from a kind of a visual standpoint. They're not quite so cliche and obvious like a Rolex. So absolutely. Yeah. I mean, that's, that's, I, I don't have much more to say about it. It's, uh, it's definitely going to stay in the collection, especially with the work I've had done to it. Um, I've had, you know, people offer to buy it and whatever, but it's like, you know, um, got a good price. The pricing on these is really skyrocketed over the past few years. And so I really feel fortunate to have gotten in on it before, before that kind of price, you know, price uh, graph went vertical, so to speak. Yeah, it, it, they really, they really have changed in the last few years, and the tu- the Tudor stuff as well. I mean, people are always talking about you know the the climb of the Submariner, but the the Tudors have gone yeah in a, in a very similar fashion. They're perhaps not as expensive as the Rolex counterpart, but I would say they're they're certainly they've certainly increased in a very uh, dramatic way. But well, that's a couple of great picks. Yeah. Two uh, two solid dive watches, both of uh, of an of their own era. One more legitimately, perhaps, than the other. But uh, I think that's great. And any questions, of course, questions, comments, the same. TheGreyNado at gmail.com. I say we jump right into some final notes. Yeah, let's do it. You've got two. I've got one. Why don't you uh, bookend mine? So why don't you go first? Okay. So my first one is uh, a, a very much actually both of mine this week are extremely watch specific, but mine. Uh, my first one is the deluxe zippered watch travel case from Vario.sg. 
Um, you can hear the zipper there. The um, it's it's you remember those like Oakley? I think they're called vaults. Oh yeah, that were these kind of they were shaped like an Oakley logo, but they were designed to hold a watch and maybe some other little items um, in this kind of EVA formed hard hard case. Yeah, it's like a clamshell sort of. Yeah, exactly. So it's not unlike maybe the, uh, if you think of the, the, the case that comes with a decent pair of headphones, uh, you know, it's kind of hard, but not too hard. It has kind of a fabric-y exterior. Anyways, I always thought those were really um, nice ways to travel, especially with watches that have a bracelet on them where they don't lie flat in a, in a case. These keep mm-hmm. the watch on their side, so they support the actual circle of the watch, if you can think of it that way. And, uh, and so the, I, I got served an ad for these. I think that's how I found this. And I, I clicked on it and they're just like a really simple kind of nicely made. They come in a few different colors, but these kind of hard cases that you put a watch in and there's like an internal spongy part and a little pocket, like a little mesh half pocket. And, uh, so I mean, I suppose you could put maybe, maybe a, a spare NATO or something up in there. They're 20 bucks and I ordered one as I kind of do on a whim to try and figure out if we can find interesting stuff to talk about on the show. So I have no affiliation with the company. I, I believe they're based somewhere in, uh, in Southeast Asia. And uh, yeah, so Vario.sg. And of course, we'll have the show notes. And it's just a simple one watch watch case. So if you're going on a vacation and you want to kind of not have a whole watch roll or something like that, this goes in a bag. It's very protected. It has a nice kind of like in, like full structure. And then the zipper really really kind of seals the deal when it's closed. Um, I'm, for 20 bucks, I'm absolutely impressed. I love this. I'm looking at it. I'm, I'm going to order one of these. I, I had one of those Oakley ones years ago, and I don't know what became of it. But um, I want to say these are slightly bigger than the Oakley one, but I think that actually kind of helps. Yeah, It, it leaves a little bit more room if you wanted to put a strap or, or a strap-changing tool or something like that in there. Yeah. yeah, their website shows like a charging cable or something, which is, you know, I guess they show an Apple Watch with a charging cable. But yeah, extra straps, even one of those little stubby strap changing tools plus a strap yep. would be kind of nice. Yeah. So I'm, I, I'm impressed. And, and I, you know, people write us and ask about how we travel with our watches. And, and, you know, I really like, obviously we love the, um, two watch fold from worn and wound is, is, is great. And I've, I've been using for quite a while. And then, uh, other than that, you know, you can get these kind of one watch pockets that don't always work that well. And, and they don't offer any legitimate like shock or knock right. protection. Yeah. And whereas I think this, you could kind of cram this down under some camera gear or, or, you know, surrounded by socks and your watch is in there nice and safe. Yeah. Good one. Yeah. Yeah, I like it. That's a great one. Yeah. Um, mine is a, uh, I was actually turned on to it by, uh, one of my Instagram followers and I'm sorry, I can't remember, uh, his name, but he turned, turned me on to it because I had snapped a photo of, um, one of the, uh, Royal National Life saving institute or lifeboat institute i can't remember what rnli stands for um over in the uk but it's um the the kind of the volunteer lifeboat service that is in various um coastal areas of of the uk and um i posted a photo of one of the stations when we were over in wales and a guy just sent me a quick message and said i think this is right up your alley and it's a guy named jack lowe who goes by lord lowe on l-o-w-e on instagram and jack lowe um, started this project called the Lifeboat Station Project, and I'm I'm going to link to his uh, his webpage uh, as opposed to Instagram, but you can certainly go to his Instagram as well. Um, it's an eight year art project that this guy has undertaken to travel around the UK, the coast of the UK, to these various lifeboat stations um, with a Victorian era 
um, camera. So it's a large format glass plate um, photography camera um, that he's lugging around in a in like a van that he's converted into a portable uh, dark room, and oh, he's wow. he's making okay. this sort of self imposed project to take photos of all of these lifeboat stations. And I think there are like 283 or something around the UK. And he, he's taking portraits of the, the people that work there, the boats and kind of their sort of setting um, on the coast in the UK. And um, he's gathering funds for this as he goes. He's, I think he's over halfway now with, with the, his project. Um, but he's, he's raising money through Patreon. So he's, you know, raising kind of just crowdfunding his his work, um, but you know, I, I, for one thing, I love the subject matter of this. I love what he's doing. I love the it's this these very vintage looking photos, you know, taken on glass plates. It it has that real late eighteen hundreds sort of um, you know people's eyes look a little bit different in these, and it's, of course it's in black and white, you know, sepia tone um, photos that that almost are timeless. Like you look at the photo, you know, these guys are, they might have an old, you know, like a Land Rover Defender that they tow the boat down to the beach with, and they might right. be wearing modern day, um, life-saving gear or, you know, foul weather right. kit. But in the photos, you look at it and you think, you know, that must be a photo from 1907 or something. Um, <laughs> uh, which is really cool. And, you know, it sort of brings me back to, to our trip to the UK, but also, I think what I like about this is I, I love anything or anybody that is doing something that is just sort of assigning themselves a project. And I, I don't gather that he's doing this for uh, monetary reasons or, you know, out of any sort of high minded um, aspirations. He, he just decided, I think he sketched out on a piece of paper, some goals one year and it was like photography, the sea and the UK or something like that. And he's like, what can I do that combines all of that? And, you know, to, to kind of, do these self-imposed challenges, whether it's a physical challenge of climbing a mountain or learning a new skill. Um, I, I just really admire people that do this stuff. Um, and as well, he's sort of capturing uh, part of the, the history and the lore of his own, of his own country. And um, it's just really admirable. And his website is really cool because he has, you know, galleries showing some of the, the photos that he's taken. He's got a podcast. He's got um, some short video clips that he's taken. Um, uh, you can sign up for a newsletter. I mean, it's it's just really impressive. So, um, you know, whether or not you fund him or you want to follow him, um, his his Instagram is really quite entertaining and quite nice too. But uh, but do check out the the Lifeboat Station project on on his website. Very cool. That's a that's a really neat project. And yeah, I do kind of like it when people just take it upon themselves to be like, well, I'm I'm going to be the one to document this or to complete this challenge just because I, I feel that I'm that's what I should be doing. That's a uh, very very cool. Uh, so my last one is very simple. It's a strap from uh, Crown and Buckle, who we've had lots of luck with uh, buying various NATOs and things like that. And after our straps episode, I received a very kind email from a listener named Albert. Albert, thank you so much for a heads up on this strap. He said, you know, that you guys didn't really mention the the Tudor strap because it's one that you'd kind of have to buy if you had a Tudor. And when we say the Tudor strap, I mean the Black Bay fabric strap, which is this very intricately made um, adjustable single piece style NATO. It's kind of their own thing. 
um, and, and they get it made in a very specific manner. I can actually link a really impressive uh, video that uh, th- that they have explaining how the Tudor strap is made and and the length they go to kind of not just use some any old fabric you you, you could find laying around. And with um with this crown and buckle strap, it's called the chevron strap. It's the exact same style of strap. So it's a single piece of uh, kind of woven fabric. You would definitely call it like a NATO. It has kind of a, a nicely reinforced tail where you would normally get little frays. And then it's it's really nice, uh, kind of thin, lightweight hardware. It's pin kept to the buckle. And then it uses this system to wrap around the buckle so that there's actually some internal adjustment. So you can really get not only the watch right where you want it on the strap, but the buckle right where you want it on your wrist, and then the tail just as you, just as long as you want it. So yeah, they're selling these things for thirty two bucks. Uh, it's a little bit more than than what you pay for something like a Toxic or even Crown and Buckles Premium NATO, which we really like. But I, I think if you if you see the kind of Tudor style strap and that's something that you want to dig out, or or you want kind of imagine a NATO cross with a Perlon. <laughs> I think that's what you get in something like this. I, I would say, and this is the first thing that Jason mentioned, is length is going to be an issue. I have seven-inch wrists, and it's nearly at its maximum. I think that you could maybe fit a seven-and-a-half or, or maybe a seven-and-a-half plus if you extended it all the way out, but I think you might end up not having enough use of the holes to actually have any keeper to go through, or to have any tail to go through the keepers. Oh, yeah. Um, so it might just be, it just isn't that long of a strap. So um, maybe it's something where Crown and Buckle will make a longer one in the future. I have absolutely no idea. They they didn't pay for this placement. I bought the strap with my own money, all that kind of stuff. And nevertheless, if you have, say, seven-inch wrists or smaller, I think this is safely a very cool, super comfortable strap. They offer it with black hardware in a couple different colors. It's good. They should be proud of it. Looks beautiful. I, I, I just love this burgeoning field of straps i mean you know For sure. i mean you can go down a rabbit hole with leather straps but i mean there's just so many who, who would have thought that you could come up with so many variations of fabric straps um you know i mean it's uh yeah this one looks really great i'm gonna order one too you've you've just cost me uh so <laughs> 52 dollars today with with your two recommendations it's great yeah, that's the way it goes. That one might end up being more for Gishani than for your wrist. Yeah, we'll see. Yeah. I'll, I'll be interested to see if... Uh, we, you, maybe you can follow up when you get it because maybe I'm wrong. Maybe you're able to find a, a adjustment that, that kind of suits a somewhat larger wrist. I know if I if I adjust mine with very little travel left at the end, I'm just a couple of holes from the last one. Oh, yeah. Uh, so we'll see We'll see how it fits. But I, I think, you know, the, the, I, the one thing I would say is their stone, which is the gray color. Mm-hmm is darker than it appears on the website. Oh, good. So it's a it's a, a dark gray is how I would describe it, rather than what looks more like a medium tone gray. Oh, yeah. Um, but I think that forest looks really cool and probably look good on just about any watch, the green. Yeah. And then they have these ones that have that are black with a stripe down the center, very similar to the Tudor ones. And yeah, I mean, the big difference is that the Tudor ones are more expensive. But again, if you're going to question why, maybe watch that video that we'll link. Um, they use like a, a very specific... Uh, proprietary system for making the fabric that goes into those straps and and I think there's something a cut above what you might be buying from uh, uh, from a third party like like a crown and buckle but 32 bucks is a great deal yeah well I think that pretty well wraps it um, good good episode good collection inspection uh, we'll come back with probably another one in uh, you know another couple of months but for now as always thanks so much for listening and a big thanks to Hodinky for supporting the show Hit the show notes via hodinky.com or on the feed for more details. 
You can follow us on Instagram at Jason Heaton and at J.E. Stacy, and follow the show at The Grey NATO. If you have any questions for us, please write to thegraynado at gmail.com and please subscribe and review wherever you find your podcasts. Music throughout is Siesta by Jazzar via the Free Music Archive. And we leave you with this quote from Henry Miller, who said, One's destination is never a place, but a new way of seeing things. <laughs>